Welcome to This is the North podcast, your source of transformative conversation, an intentional challenge to the systems holding back the North of England. Hosted by Alison Dunn, an award-winning charity chief executive and former solicitor. This podcast is supported by Society Matters Community Interest Company and is dedicated to curating and sharing knowledge, powering the change we need for a more equal and inclusive society. I'd like to welcome my guests today, John Johnson, CEO of Benicia, who also sits on the board of the Council of North East Chamber of Commerce, Dr Henry Kippen, who is the Interim Chief Executive of the North East Mayoral Combined Authority, and last but certainly not least, Sheena Ramsey, who is the Chief Executive of Gateshead Council, one of seven local authorities involved in the NEMCA Combined Authority. Today we're discussing the North-South divide and the role of levelling up, and in particular devolution, in tackling social and economic differences that go back centuries. The UK has the highest inequality between its different regions than any other developed country, including Germany, the US and France, resulting in poorer outcomes for northern folk. So, John, to you first, if I may. We hear this term levelling up a lot. What does it really mean to the public and civic society more broadly? Thanks. I suppose one literal uh, meaning of levelling up, it's a combination of policies and initiatives aimed at ending the economic disparity between the regions. That all sounds really, really great, doesn't it? But I suppose let's put levelling up in the context of the North East uh, Combined Authority, because levelling up can mean different things from different people. In terms of levelling up here, I think what it means for people on the street is that there's got to be a real focus on economic growth and regeneration, jobs, job creation. There's also got to be a real focus on adult skills and training, because what we need to do is make sure that our communities can take advantage of the opportunities that devolution will bring. So get our, our communities work ready and trained for the new jobs and opportunities that are coming. There's always going to be a focus on transport across the region to better connect our communities both physically but also digitally. And there's also going to be a focus on, on housing because we know lots of benefits of good quality housing in terms of platform for people to, to live better quality lives. But but for me, devolution and levelling up in the northeast combined authority means a massive opportunity for us. It, it, it is huge. I think it, it is uh, the only game in town. It means a real alignment with our political and public sector leaders, with business across the northeast, all of whom are determined to make a better world and better prospects for the communities across the northeast. And the final thing I'll, I'll see on levelling up, it's a bit more of a level playing field in terms of decision making. It's a transfer of decision making powers from Westminster into the northeast, so decisions are being made by local people who understand the region, the opportunities, what issues are trying to solve, and with that goes not only decision-making powers, but financial clout, so actually transition those decisions into practical things on the ground, so I think it's a massive opportunity for the northeast. And we'll certainly be picking up on all of those themes as our conversation develops, but before we do, Henry, can I just come to you? The levelling up white paper is 332 pages long. I mean, that's a novel by anyone's standards. And it contains 12 missions which are designed to address geographical disparities in wealth, opportunity and health, as well as scores and scores of metrics for measuring the success. I suppose amongst all of this information, where does devolution rank in terms of importance? So for me, devolution is at the top of the list. You cannot realise any of the benefits of levelling up without bringing decisions closer to communities, without giving our businesses, our places 
our voluntary sector the ability to define what their own future looks like without convening properly across the sectors, because let's face it, we're not going to see 20 billion like East Germany did to level up every year for the next 25 years anytime soon. So the big value in the devolution deal, and John's absolutely right, there's a lot in there, but the biggest thing is it allows us to convene. It allows us to speak with one voice as a region. It allows us to say, this is what our future needs to look like as a Northeast. Here's how we can deliver it together and mobilize the, the wealth and the assets and really the potential of all of our sectors around it. So after you've skipped through Medici era Florence and the first 350 pages of the white paper, what you'll find there is a document which opened the door really to the Northeast saying, here's what we need to be about and here's how we want to get it. And Sheena, there's some big ambitions, as Henry's just described, within the levelling up agenda. It also includes the need to increase productivity, to improve education, skills, social mobility, civic pride, as well as regional transport, crime reduction, place-based regeneration, the list goes on and on. These are big agendas that you're being asked to address here on the back of decades of underinvestment in disparities in outcomes. So my question is, can it be done? Because let's be honest, it's not the first time that governments of all colours have tried and failed to do this. I think um, the levelling up white paper is probably one of the more interesting papers that have come out of a government. It's more joined up in terms of actually focusing on what impacts on people's lives. So lots of the papers that have come out over the years around regeneration are particularly around just growing the economy. They're not necessarily linked to what impact does that have on local people and, and how do you actually make sure that local people benefit for that. So for me, I think a devolution will give the North East the North East pound. So we, we want to make sure that the, the, the North East benefits from this investment directly, both in terms of people having good jobs, the, the opportunity to, to travel around the region to those jobs, but fundamentally to tackle some of those underlying issues that, that you mentioned at the outset, Alison, around inequality and poverty, which have been here for a very long time and in some cases are being exacerbated even further. The, the real essence of, of levelling up in the devolution for me is the region being able to have more autonomy in how it uses its funds, how it creates policy. Devolution to the northeast should mean our, our leaders can actually work with the intelligence of what we know this area is like and, and, and actually develop things that are more bespoke to the north and, and not try and have or not have to have this one size fits all. So Henry, John, I'll throw this out to both of you actually. Is there enough money in this to get the job done? There's never enough money from our point of view and I'm sure the political team in the region would say exactly the same thing. But let's think about different types of money as well. What this devolution deal allows us to do is not replace years of austerity or make everything fine from day one. It gives us risk capital, really, for the region to be able to put some public sector funding behind really ambitious cross-sector working. So in the housing world, that might mean enabling housing development to happen faster because we're able to support that or, or make the process quicker as the public sector. In terms of skills, that might mean having more control over the funding collectively rather than waiting for Whitehall to passport that to our FE colleges or universities. So sometimes it's not just about the quantum of money, it's about what you're able to do with it. And and Sheena's absolutely right. The, the, the essence of this is doing what is right for the region. And there is a cross-party consensus around the need to do that. You'll see in the devolution deal, that is there. If you look at our model in the, the, the region, the economic model, should I say, it has to be different to other places, doesn't it? We're a really unique mix of city, coast and country the scale of the northeast is more analogous to Wales than it is another city region in terms of size and scale. So we have to be really creative in terms of not only 
how we run a combined authority together and make that as collaborative as it needs to be. But think about different types of resources. It's not just about public money. It's about our ability to crowd in other sources of funding and, and, and assets, frankly, including those of our communities. And John, someone who's invested in building houses, what does this mean for you? I think in terms of the housing, the housing sector, what the devolution is going to do is provide the catalyst for more collaborative work rather than competition. Yeah. It seems to me a, a bizarre situation where there is so much need that won't be met that we should be wasting resources on competing rather than collaborating. And that, I think everybody now is getting behind the devolution deal and we are going to collaborate. So in terms of housing, we're, we're on the cusp of launching a Northeast Housing Partnership. Uh, that's 17 landlords from across the region coming together across housing associations, arms length management organisations and council retained stock to work with the combined authority and make them an offer of how we can be a delivery partner with them. So but give you some sense of what that could bring. And I think Henry's dead right. There's never enough money, but what you use the money is to align other funding sources and other funding to actually bring them together because you can do more together by bringing funding pots to one place. So across that housing partnership, we, we built, for example, the last four years, 7,000 homes in the Northeast, approaching a billion pounds worth of investment. We own, at the moment, manage 214,000 homes, which is one in six homes in the region. So we, we have a, an infrastructure of support, particularly to our tenants in local communities where we are anchor organisations. So devolution de is about the big macro levelling up, but also reaching maybe those that are furthest away from the workplace who need support in housing providers like those in the Northeast Housing Partnership have got some real local support systems in place already. And we can work with the Royal Authority, not only in terms of building the homes and building more homes, we can work with them on bringing together the money that we spend on maintaining our homes through retrofit programs. And if you think about it, if you have 17 big, big landlords working together, that starts to generate a forward pipeline of investment. We can invest in manufacturing capacity in the region, in training, in fitting new technologies, and maintaining new technologies. But because of our reach into local communities, helping to get those local people into those jobs. So not overcomplicated. As part of that, we've got the housing employee network in Northeast Henna, which is already working across the partnership. Last year, as housing providers, we held 1,500 people into work and we helped another 5,000 on their journey into work through training and support we get. So it's, it's the evolution is the catalyst for other people to get behind the region and, and housing providers and landlords are only one example. But businesses getting behind the evolution as well, the work of the chamber. So I think it's just a massive opportunity for the Northeast in general. Numbers that you mentioned in terms of helping people into work are really, really impressive. But we know that 41% of key workers in the northeast are underpaid in comparison to others in the country. Our nearest for that price, for the accolade of poor pay, is the northwest, where 29% of people are living in poverty despite being in work. Sheena, do you think this is going to make a difference to that particular group of people? I think it absolutely has to, Alison. I mean, I think this is an opportunity, as, as, as Henry and John have said, to do it differently. To actually start from the reality of where some people are actually living now. As you say, people are in work and they're still living in poverty. I mean, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. 
So how do you kind of rebalance that inequality? And one of, one of the things that we're we're talking about now, and it, it in some respects it, it, it it's very undeveloped, but it is about how do you use the public sector purse in a much more joined up way, so that actually some of some of the people who that we work with don't necessarily get the best outcomes that they could get if we worked in a more intelligent and smart way. So, I mean, Henry's right, there's never enough money, but we need to make sure we use the money that we've got in the best possible way. And that means doing things in a differentiated way, targeting things. You know, I'm really excited about the prospect of us being able to work on on adult, adult and skills, but also looking at bespoke ways of getting people into work through maybe even volunteering initially, but then actually starting to get people back into the job market. Because if we're going to really make this work, we, we don't want people to have to live off benefits. I remember a very early conversation when the, the leader of Gates had said, we don't want to come down to Westminster with our cap in hand and ask for help. We want to be able to do it for ourselves. And I think this is that opportunity for self-determination. And pride and the resilience in the northeast is palpable. So we just need to find the right way of unlocking it for individual people. Um, I mean, certainly on our watch, we can't let it fail because this is this is the the fundamental opportunity that 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 will make the northeast absolutely thrive. But the system has, to, up until this point, placed local authorities as competitors, and now all of a sudden you're being asked to work cooperatively. So how do you decide on the issues that you're going to work on together? I mean, I. I mean, it's a really good question. And and actually, if anything good came out of COVID, it was the collaboration that the, the, the seven local authorities developed over that period of time. I mean, there has been historically a kind of competition in, in the region. But in the, in the circumstances that we're in now, I have never seen the local authorities work as well together, regardless of party political issues. And there is a fundamental kind of core tenant, which is about this has got to be for the for the people of the region. So it's great if we get new investment and big regeneration schemes and, and all of that sort of stuff. But if it doesn't improve people's lives, then we've failed. But politically, that is across the board. They've been really, really clear. This can't just be about creating more money. It's got to be about it tackling inequality. And that does mean thinking really differently. And, and they're up for it. I, th- I think that's sort of... Because there are some really intractable problems in the area. Social care. There's not going to be a solution coming anytime soon from, from central government. If we're liberated to respond to some of those issues as a seven, I think we'll find the solutions. Because it is a really tough time for local government, isn't it? We've just had Birmingham City Council go bust. There are 26 local authorities that say that they are likely to go bust in the next 24 months. So I suppose, is it the alternative to devolution is not great? I fundamentally think we are stronger together as a local government family. And I know that phrase has been often misused over the last few years, but I think it's true. Some of the challenges that Sheen has just set up, which are absolutely right, can only be solved through collaborating either because the citizens at the end of them don't necessarily recognise local authority boundaries. If you're a kid on the edge of care or you're involved in county lines, or local authority boundaries are an administrative function. They're, they're, they're not important to you in your life, and, what, and why should they be? In other areas, we can work together in ways that are more powerful than we can on our own. That might mean thinking about, as Sheena said, creative ways to procure things 
could mean buying at scale. It could mean doing different things. It could mean supporting local businesses more proactively than we currently do. We could learn a lot from the social housing sector on that, I think. And then in other areas, we need to speak with one voice. We just do, don't we? So some of the challenges that we face as a region will be the same across other parts of the North, and they require us to speak together in order to move the needle in terms of both central government and what central government might need to do now or in future and move the market in certain areas too. So if you wind back to thinking about our places, we're in the centre of Newcastle at the moment. How do you regenerate a city like this? That's actually about the way you work with the market as much as anything else. And collective strength and leadership is much more powerful than everybody going their own way in that environment. So I think there's lots and lots of reasons why um, we are stronger together. And the essence of making this devolution deal work will be about how strong the collaboration is. Sheena's quite right. It's been really strong and big credit to the political team for, for staying the course and making sure we can land this devolution deal. It needs to continue over the long term. You mentioned our cities and they play a crucial role in whatever's going to come next. But actually, generally speaking, they're underperforming in terms of productivity. So addressing this has, has got to be a priority. How do you see devolution tackling that? I think there are a number of ways in which a devolution deal can address productivity issues. So if you, if you look at the evidence base internationally, number one thing that drives productivity over the long run, human capital, skills, access to courses that might be transition from different tiers of education might mean you're rooting to jobs out of learning. In all of those areas, you've got parts of the devolution deal that can make a really positive difference. Not change the game fundamentally overnight, but over time make make that really big difference. Quality of housing, absolutely fundamental. The extent to which businesses have access to finance, the quality of your transport links between the places that people work and, and, and where they live, all totally fundamental to solving that productivity puzzle. So there are lots and lots of ways in which we can positively contribute to that over time. And John, I know you've got a view about this because we talked about it earlier, so I'll give you the opportunity to come in. There's a couple of views, you don't mind, Alison. I, I suppose in terms of productivity, it, it is important, and I know it's happening now, that the whole authority have close links to conversations with regional business through the Chamber of Commerce uh, and other bodies. And the Chamber did some work recently for the Department of Education on a SIPs which is the local skills improvement plans, which is meant to advise what the local areas need in terms of post-16 education. And it's meant to link up the views of employers in terms of the skills that they need. So what, we, what we've got to look to do is look at what, what employment we have now, what employment opportunities we have coming down the track, and how we prepare our communities with the skills to take advantage of those opportunities. Now, what the LSIP, what the L a number of messages from the LSIP that, that came out. There was issues around digital and communication skills in, in, term, in terms of our communities, general issues in terms of the confidence of, of, of some of our communities, issues or opportunities around construction and maintenance, obviously linked to housing, issues around the energy centre and health and social care. But the other, the other big lesson, or big lesson that came out, was that there needed to be a very close, coordinated strategy between employers that combine authority and educational establishments. So what we were talking about previously is that we should really celebrate in the region academic achievement of our of our of our schools, of our universities, of, of our children. But we should also be very careful to balance that with vocational training in apprenticeships to make sure there's an offer and a route into employment for all our communities. And I think what we need is a far more balanced approach 
in terms of routes into employment, which links up the skills that the employers need. So I think the focus of this deal is to celebrate educational achievement. Universities, schools do a fantastic job. Try and think about how we slow down the brain draining and have those high, high paying and, and jobs in the region so we can take advantage of the intellectual capacity in the region. But also on the other side of it, thinking about that academia isn't the route for all of our communities and our children. There's the practical skills, there's the vocational, the workplace development, the apprenticeships. And I think it's that decline over the last generation which which has perhaps left some of our communities further from the workplace. So there's got to be a real link up with employers to inform post-16 education and skills training and with a real investment in vocational and apprentices to get the communities linked up with the jobs that are coming. And I think if we do that, it'll be a far more balanced approach in terms of pathways into employment. I would see, obviously, housing plays a central role in that. If you At a macroeconomic level, if we can build more social rented homes, it will underpin the construction industry. And when you have a balanced approach to housing, what the region needs, we should be supporting. We should also value the real role that rented housing plays for many in the region, high-quality social rented homes and also work with the private renter sector. There are many good private landlords out there. What I'm saying is have a balanced approach to housing in terms of in terms of social housing, high quality homes, at a real cost that people that people can afford. So they aren't spending a disproportionate amount of their income on housing costs. And they have a solid platform that can help them enjoy their life and maximize their life chances. I won't play out today, but it's well documented the role that good quality housing can play in people's life chances, the role it can play in better educational attainment, and the role it can play in helping the health and social care sectors in terms of keeping people in their homes longer and more healthy in terms of good quality housing. And I think we, we as a housing sector, stand ready to help. And what I would say, just listening to Sheena and Henry, the final thing I would say is, and it was Helen Patterson actually in Northumberland. I was in a meeting with her last week. I think you were there, Henry, that said we have a social obligation to do this now. Forget about all all, all the other arguments. There's a social obligation. Right? We're here to help our communities and we're doing it because socially it's the right thing for us to do. Yeah, and Sheena, almost 38% of our kids are not getting maths GCSE and only one in five are going on to become high earners. So this really is a big, big issue because if we want those people to have be able to afford good quality housing in the future, then they need good quality jobs. And we've already talked about the challenges our key workers have. How do we ensure that the jobs that we are creating are the right jobs? I mean, I think probably a step before that, and I really agree with what John said, is things like apprenticeships. I mean, I've got three sons. My middle son was an absolute bloody nightmare at school. I couldn't get him there kicking and screaming. And it, the amount of times I used to be called into the school and this, that, he's, he's lovely, really, really badly behaved, but very polite about it. But then when he was 16, he got an apprenticeship to be a chef and he was like a different human being. You know, I mean, he now has his own apartment in, in Liverpool. I mean, he, he's buying his own apartment in Liverpool. He's kind of been taken over by an alien. He, he really absolutely has thrived on that route. So I think your point about academia isn't necessarily for everybody. What I would also say, though, and it does worry me still, but again, I think it's an opportunity for devolution, is it's a very complex landscape around skills and employment. In, a, in another role that I had, I chaired a 
uh, Employment and Skills Board, and it was so difficult to do things in a in a rapid way. I mean, we need to be really fleet of foot. Some of the major employers used to say to me, and I'm including people like, say, Jagger and Land Rover, we don't necessarily want people to go and have degrees. We want to be able to mould them from a very early age. We want them to have the right values. That They almost have to unprogram some people once, they, once they've gone through the kind of degree route. So it isn't for everybody and it isn't for every business. I mean, some of the, the gaming sector in, in, in Gateshead, they don't want them to go off and get degrees. They want them to be there and almost unfettered by the influence of academics or anything else. They want their brains of the 16-year-olds who can kind of come up with this really creative stuff and it hasn't already been channeled into this is how you think and this is how you do. It's just kind of almost free fall. You know, I mean, gaming is one of those really burgeoning businesses and it's all really quirky and kind of not at all what you'd necessarily expect. So the current landscape in terms of employment skills, Scott, and it must be at least 30 different organisations and government money to all of those different organisations. Imagine what we could do if we could actually have a really slick way of being able to communicate with employers and actually get people into those jobs. Because everything's moving so quickly. I mean, as I didn't know what a podcast was, my, my kids have to tell me about these things. You, you can't keep up. You can't necessarily wait for a three-year degree to learn how to do some of this stuff. There just isn't time. By the time you've done a course, in some cases, not in everything, obviously, things have moved on. So we do need, as John was saying, all sorts of different routes into this. And there is a place for academia. I loved my first degree, but it was in geology. I don't think it necessarily got me to where I am now. But the, the point being is that we, we want a whole plethora of opportunities for people and for all of those things to have parity. We need to make sure that we respect those people who come through the apprenticeship route as much as those who come through academia. And John, you've mentioned the work that the Chamber's been doing around creating a strategy for skills. Does that resonate, what Sheena's just said, and how closely are you working with the combined authority to bring that to life? Yeah, I mean, I think absolutely. I think what the Chamber have been doing, as I've said, is that the, the other voice of business in the North East are very close to all businesses across the region, you know, their, their, their level of engagement is really second to none, which is why they were best, best placed, I believe, to take the commission to do the local skills improvement plans. So in the combined authority, for example, they ended up speaking to 1,800 businesses. Across the combined authority and NT side, they, they spoke to 3,500 businesses. So that really is enriched intelligence in terms of what, what business needs. And, and the message from business was, was loud, and, loud and clear. Business, as Sheena said, business need local community where talent. They know that in the Northeast, there is a strong work ethic and a fantastic sense of community. What they need is the routes into employment to be more closely aligned with businesses and business growth. So they're getting the right skills and the right attitudes and they're getting them at the right time. So I think in terms of the work that the Chamber does, particularly around that whole skills agenda, is vital. And I won't rehearse it again, but I think what they were clearly saying is there is lots of opportunity in the region. And we can talk about those opportunities, whether it's the the green energy sector, whether it's construction, whether it's maintenance, whether it's it's health health and social care. The, the, The lesson is the same, though. We've got to get the kids early. We've got to support... In some of the kids on some of our communities who are the furthest away from the workplace, 
we need to understand the complex issues that are impacting on those. So if you look at the, the child poverty rate in the Northeast, I mean, we, we know the report published a few years ago, which had the figure of 35%. It, it, it's soul destroying. It, it, it makes, me, makes me so sad. But I think, thinking about it, what we've got to do is work with the schools, work with the communities, work with the local authorities to understand the complexities around some things that are holding back some of our communities. Now, what, what I would say, obviously, it would be if I didn't, I think that housing providers are on a wonderful position because we work in lots of these communities and we have lots of support networks already. And, and we, we can be a conduit with the local authorities, with the devolved authorities to get into skills and training, but also the wider support and, and the bridge between the communities, the educational establishment and the employers. And we've proven that over the last 12 months because it can be complex, it can be labor intensive, and you need a very, you need a very clear understanding of the local circumstances because often no, no set of circumstances are the same. But, but I'm, I'm really enthused because at least there, I think there's a willingness to have different pathways into employment. There's a willingness to bring all sections of our community along with us and make sure leveling up means a level of opportunity to all members of our society so they can benefit from what hopefully, what I'm convinced is going to be a much more pr- prosperous future for the Northeast. I do think we need to hide the wiring though, because I just think for some employers and for some people looking for employment, it is really, really difficult. So I think one of the things we can do is simplify it. They don't need to know how it all works behind the scenes. We just need, we need to make it much easier for people to be able to do that. One of the things that is holding us back, Henry, and you would expect, I think, for me to mention this is transport. And I suppose what I'd like to understand is what opportunities does devolution bring to us to get that right? Transport's a really important part of the package, devolution. For quite a few of our political colleagues, that's the biggest reason for doing this in the first place, if you like. It's completely fundamental to addressing all of the challenges that John and Gina have have just set out. And there are, I think, some real reasons to be hopeful. So, for one, a really very decent package of investment on transport, which uh, will support um, elements of bus improvement and reform, which will support elements of improvement to our metro network, active travel, for example, and greater influence on rail franchises within the region. They're all practical examples, really, but you, you get the picture that there is a package of investment there that's just shy of a billion over the next five or six years, and we could expect more to come. And in fact, part of what we've done as a region is jump off the naughty step really in relation to transport so so we've got pretty good robust arrangements despite the fragmentation of the political geography in the region uh, to run transport joint transport committee is chaired by sheena's leader in 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 gateshead it's been really very effective in terms of drawing in additional resource into the region but from government's point of view not quite enough in order to unlock that next round of transformative funding should i say the fact that we are now agreeing this devolution deal and going down the route of making that happen in reality allows us to bring forward just a degree more investment that that, that can help us to realise some of those long-term goals. So not just incremental improvement and making sure our network is safe, but thinking about metro extensions. Not just can we get the Northumberland line done in terms of the engineering dig, but what does that mean in terms of housing and integration with the metro and making sure that we've got integrated ticketing. So the devolution deal allows us to think longer term on transport and we know from the HS2 announcements recently that the landscape will change a bit. Different governments or different prospective governments will come into the election with manifestos that are full of transport promises one way or another. 
the the really important thing is that we're certain as a region about what we want and we're able to put some long-term funding behind that and I think the devolution deal gives us um, a lot to be hopeful for on, on that score. What I would say as the flip side to that is that that doesn't remove the need for proper national funding of big national infrastructure requirements. So if you look at the, the, the pitch that the region has made on reopening of the Leam side line over time, for example, that is a great example of something that needs to be nationally funded because it is nationally important in terms of freeing up capacity on the East Coast mainline. If you look at the work Northumberland's done over the years on make, making the case for dueling the A1, same thing, isn't it? That shouldn't be about local money. That should be nationally important infrastructure that's nationally prioritised. And I think the North has got a case to be made uh, more broadly from Manchester and Liverpool in the West all the way through to the East Coast for a lot more funding to be unlocked to support that intercity connectivity within within the North. Because we've had decades of underinvestment and actually for anyone who's ever tried to get from the North East across to the West of the country, it is a a nightmare. And you mentioned high speed rail there. We couldn't have a conversation about devolution without talking about high speed rail. I mean, is that dead and buried never going to happen now? Oh, I don't think I'm the person that can put the final nail on the coffin of high speed rail. I think the, the conversation about high speed rail and the need for faster connectivity between our cities is always going to be there. London to Birmingham, yes, but also Birmingham to Manchester and beyond to Leeds, the East Coast, we won't stop making the case for the Leam sideline and greater capacity on the East Coast, nor will leaders across the whole of the North, the mayors and others, stop making the case for, what do you call it, Northern Powerhouse Rail, I think is the terminology to describe essentially faster East-West connections. I mean, you start in Manchester and you end up in Newcastle looking like Leonardo DiCaprio and the Revenant by the time you've got off the train, don't you? So there is obviously a case for that, and I think we'll all be across the North relentless in, in, in pushing for John, it seems that our country has very little patience with the big infrastructure programmes that are necessary for regeneration. High-speed rail is just one example of that, the upgrading of the A1 that Henry's just mentioned. How does this affect the willingness of businesses and, and investors to come here? And what does it mean for the freeport at Teesside? I mean, does it have an impact on that? I think obviously in investors, when they're looking in terms of by nature, where they're going to make investors and where they're, where they're going to put roots down, do look at a wide variety of issues. So infrastructure, transport is one of them. But I think what investors in the Northeast combined of will now get a great degree of confidence about is that there is a, a strategic body that, is, that will have speak with a sole voice when they are lobbying government for the big projects that, that Henry talked about. And there is a there is a place for those key investors to go and have those high level strategic discussions. So I think that in terms of, of the the combined authority, it is about really being positive about what the northeast can give to investors because transport is one thing, yes, but investors look for a whole range of other things. So I have a little phrase that I'll try to uh, what the region does have. We have the coast, the castles, the cathedrals. We've got the towns, we've got the cities, we've got the people with a, with a, with a work ethic. We've got the rivers, we've got the parks. It's a wonderful place to work, live and visit. And what we have got that many of the regions haven't got is land to grow and develop. So if you look at the opportunities for the Northeast Combined Authority, we've got the land for the big projects, whether that be economic growth in terms of jobs and opportunities, whether it be strategic housing sites. What we've got to do is link all together. So we've got to link the jobs with the transport, with the housing, that whole play shaping agenda 
but also link it with the experience of living in the Northeast. I've lived here my whole life. I wouldn't want to live anywhere else. So if you're an investor looking at the Northeast, you've got to combine authority who can speak for one voice for government in terms of lobbying for what you need in terms of the major infrastructure. But you've got one organization you can go through and talk more about what your intimate requirements are at a more regional level for you to make that investment decision to invest in the Northeast. And we all have got a, a role to play in selling the Northeast. Because I think sometimes people could be accused of talking the region down. It is a wonderful region and it really is the land of opportunity. Yeah, I mean, we hear that phrase, don't we, Grim up north all of the time. And actually, I've got some friends in the south of England who up until very recently had never come here because of that very thing. And when they did, they were astonished at the sort of cultural and heritage that was available here. And it helped that it was a beautiful sunny day, of course. But Henry and Sheena, this one's for you too, I think. There are some inevitable tensions between the need to spend money on these big regeneration projects along with the very immediate need to help people with the problems that they're facing now. How are you going to decide where the money goes? Just have a massive fight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, back. <laughs> my money's on Sheen on that one then, Henry. Sadly, mine would be too if it wasn't called throwing the fight. Let me just offer a, um, a thought by way of an answer to that. I think I, I slightly reject the premise of the question, if that makes sense in that I think you need to do both. We, the, any combined authority that's doing its job well needs to deal in identifiable, long-term, visible projects that you can hang your hat on, that people can recognise that might be about a rail extension in the West Midlands. It's about make, uh, making sure the benefits of HS2 are realised. In Greater Manchester, it's about franchising the buses, let's say. Big things that are long-term, take a lot of resource and take patience, but will deliver big benefits over time. You also need to deal in short-term measures that show why you did this in the first place. They might be investments in skills. They will come through immediately. We'll be making investments in brownfield housing that will come through immediately. We'll be making investments in uh, regeneration of our places, including Sheena's patch that will be seen immediately. You can't wait 30 years to show the public that it was the right thing to do. It has to be both at the same time. And I think any mayor that comes through the door um, and by the way, everybody should listen to this and vote in the election whichever way they'd like to, but please do vote because participation in that is really, really important. Any mayor will need to show both that we're hitting the ground running, there's real clear benefits, that this new governance is not just a load of administration with no result for 30 years, but that things are happening, but also dealing those long-term strategic issues for the region. That's not zero-sum, that's not a trade-off, that's about good democratic decision-making, and that is the reason why, in my view, the Merrill Combined Authority model is the best model because it mixes evidence about what the region needs over the long run with democracy. And that's the that's the mix that you need in order for things to stick. I think the other thing is that this is the beginning of the conversation, isn't it? So we have a 30-year plan, but places like Greater Manchester have been renegotiating their deal, I think six, seven iterations now. So with, with confidence in the region, we'll be able to go to government and ask for more. So I think there is absolutely a balance between making sure that we do the right strategic things and obviously each local authority wants to be able to show the benefit of them participating in the combined authority but we've got the maturity now of having a long-term plan and, and we started that actually through the joint transport committee i mean we created the first joint transport plan across the seven and actually going through that process i think has given us confidence that you can't always have what you want straight away 
but your your turn will come round and everybody will support it. So there there is there is that maturity, but I think the really exciting opportunity in some respects is what we do the next round and the round after that. We've got a trailblazer. You know, imagine if we can get even more devolved powers and 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 resources. So I, I think it's it's having that that kind of sense of it might not be my turn this week, but it might be my turn next week. And then having that relationship with government, that kind of single point of contact and be able to say, well, the North East can pilot this for you. We've got excellent infrastructure around this. We can do this for you. So we don't, we don't want to ask for help. We want to be able to ask for more power and influence. So is there anything that could stop Nemka, so we've already alluded to the fact that we've got a general election coming up, there's potentially change of government afoot. Could it be stopped? Could it look very different? Could it be stopped and could it look very different? Well, as Sheena said, we're at the start of a journey, full stop. So actually, over the next 30 years, there will be different iterations of Nemka. We might not even be calling it Nemka in a couple of years. Other names are available. But we are now at a point in the process where quite a lot of the work has been done to translate a deal on a page, literally signatures on a page and some words that are public into something that is democratically legitimised both locally and within Whitehall. The final stages of that need to be done now. So the order needs to lay in Parliament. To use the technical terminology, it needs to be laid and debated and then made. And then an election happens and then a mayor will be elected for the northeast, and that will all happen in very early May. So there's quite a lot of water to go under the bridge between now and the legal formation of this new combined authority. What I would say is that's a well-trodden road. There are other places that have done that before, and the strength of collaboration that Sheena talked about is is there across the political team. I'm very, very confident that, that we will get there and this will happen but it will happen because of a lot of hard work from a lot of people. And that's not just talking about the last two or three years. There's a long tail of this going back quite quite a time. And actually, in, in contrast to, to what John was saying, I'm, I'm from the region. I grew up in Gateshead and I left the region and came back after 20 years. And, I, and I've absolutely loved being back here because it is a place where I think there's such a lot of opportunity to thrive and grow. And it feels like it's our time to do this. Might have not quite worked in the past in the way that you might have imagined, but... It's going to know. So my final question to you all is, what will success look like then? Well, we'll have eradicated poverty. Everybody will have fabulous homes to live in. There'll be great connectivity and we will be the envy of the world. Well, that's nothing to dislike there, is there? I think my, I fundamentally obviously agree with what Sheena said. It is about eradicating poverty, particularly child poverty and closing the, the, the ill health disparities in, in terms of life expectancy and, and good quality of life. What success will look like for me, and bear in mind, I am apolitical, and my organisation is apolitical, is that when we, ha- when we have a combined authority that is influential, it has the powers and the decision-making powers and the resources, so it, it is able to make long-term decisions for the good of the region, that will, oft, will often span parliamentary terms, and so it won't be subject to any any changes at, at a national level. One of my concerns, as Alison was talking earlier, is the combative nature of politics at the moment with a five-year parliamentary term. It is difficult. How, how do we get really good policy uh, that has longevity in a combative political system? 
And I think one of the real benefits of having a strong combined authority, which is aligned in terms of what the Northeast needs, is that it, it will be able to make those longer term decisions and be more influential, as Sheena said, in terms of the trailblazer, more accountable locally, better evidence-based decisions, and not so much subject to changes at a national level. Uh, so my my success is the Northeast Combined Authority making long-term decisions which benefit our communities and lift them out of poverty because they are best placed to be able to do so. So no pressure first then. No. I agree with all of that. I think in the short term, a measure of success is for this to feel like the region's combined authority, not just not ours in the public sector, not the political teams, not mine, not anybody's. It needs to be the region's. It needs to feel like that. It needs to feel like people can buy into it and see themselves reflected in it. And that's hugely, hugely important. And to quote the great Dolly Parton, you've got to find out what you're good at and do it on purpose and be completely relentless about it. Well, all that remains is for me to say thank you very much for your participation today. Thank you. Thank you. Cheers.